Welcome to the Simply Financial Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Calandra. So on today's episode, I brought on uh, returning guest, Kristen McGarry. You may recall that she's Senior Regional Vice President for Pacific Life. Uh, hopefully you listened to last week's episode. Last week's episode, I talked about this 4% rule, and I invited Kristen on to explore this rule some more and get her perspective, her company's perspective about the 4% rule. So if you haven't listened to that, uh, you'll be able to listen today, but I would definitely draw your attention to last week's episode too. So uh, Kristen, thanks for taking some time to uh, join me to talk about this today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Very excited to be here. So the initial question I have, Kristen, just to kind of make sure that we're all on the same page, can you describe for my listeners and for me too, your explanation of what the 4% rule is? Yeah. So I'm going to give a brief overview and then go more in depth on it. So the 4% rule means you can take 4% out of your investments per year for income adjusted for inflation each year without technically running out of money during your lifetime or what's assumed a 30-year retirement. So that's what the 4% rule is. But to take it a step further back, In 1994, William Bagan, he was then a financial planner in Southern California, and he started really digesting the 4% rule, and he came up with a lot of historical data from the Ibbotson stocks, bonds, bills, and inflation. He assumed a portfolio was evenly split between stocks and bonds, so 50% in each. He then used the S&P 500 index to represent the stock market and the intermediate term government bond to represent the bond market. He constructed a 30-year rolling period beginning in 1926, and he adjusted it each year for inflation, assuming 30 years in inflation. And that's where the 4% rule came in that he felt comfortable. You could take 4% off of the portfolio and be able to sustain retirement income, assuming 30 years. Good. Very good. Now, in last week's episode, I talked a little bit about that allocation, the 50% S&P 500, 50% treasuries. And it seems to me, I'd like your opinion on it, that as time has moved on, the 4% rule mostly, mostly today refers to the withdrawal rate and less about the allocation. I made the point that generically, I think people just use sort of a unspecified mix of stocks and bonds to describe the 4% rule and not the specific 50-50 stock and treasury. Is that a fair assessment? I couldn't agree more. So when William Bagan came out, that was his like his studies saying 50-50, but I think the allocation, forgive me, is kind of a mood point. So you could have a 70-30, a 60-40 allocation. It was all about the withdrawal rate, all about having a 4% withdrawal rate. When we talk about Monte Carlo later, Um, In the podcast, then we'll start talking a little bit more about the allocation, but it's more about the withdrawal rate um, focused on 4%. Very good. And I also talked last week, and I would like to cover with you some of the pressures that this 4% rule, and uh, I know we're not uh, uh, doing visual for this show, but I'm going to use air quotes for the 4% rule because I'm not sure it's a rule exactly, probably more of a rule of thumb or a guideline. I want to talk about some of the pressures and weaknesses of the 4% rule. But before we get to that, 
Can you talk about some of the positives of the 4% rule? Yeah, I think some of the positives are it allows investors to stay invested. It allows somebody to have a good gauge of how much income they could take off of a portfolio. So not expecting unrealistic withdrawal rates. So I think it gives a lot of positives in that aspect of how much income you could expect. When we talk about some of the pressures, when I started in this industry and around the same time you did over 25 years ago, the rule was a 5% rule. Yeah. We were more comfortable taking 5% adjusted for inflation, but interest rates were a decent amount higher. And I might be getting ahead of myself in this, in this conversation, but with interest rates being extremely low, I've read an article last week talking about is 3.8 the new 4% rule? With interest rates being low and your bonds not paying as much, it's a lot different than when you and I first started in this industry. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I want to talk to you about the pressures. But before before we move to that, I think one of the positives that I believe the 4% rule allows for is it's very simple. You know, some of the things in speaking with clients who are not experts and don't want to be immersed in financial planning. And, you know, we're going to talk about Monte Carlo simulation. It's very simple. You simply explain it's a withdrawal rate. You have X number of dollars. Um, a good safe return is 4%. If we invest the money in a reasonable mix of stocks and bonds, the likelihood that you run out of money if you take out 4% is remarkably low. It's not foolproof, but it's very simple for people. And I think that is one of the charms of that. You know, I could generate for my clients, Kristen, a retirement analysis that could run dozens of pages. It's a lot of people don't want to digest that. And, and, they just want something that's a back of the envelope, quick calculation. And I think the 4% rule, one of its best attributes is its simplicity, its elegance. I agree with that. And I think it gives a reasonable expectation which somebody could expect for income off of a portfolio to know if they're where they need to be getting ready for retirement. Good. And you already um, touched on pressures. And I think uh, it's a, a good place to go next because this 4% rule came about in the mid-1990s, as you said, and it was based on historical performance data from 1926 to 1976. And clearly the world we live in today is very different in notable ways compared to that era. Uh, you mentioned interest rates, but even just technology, the adoption of 401ks and IRAs as opposed to the pensions that dominated that era. There's just so many differences. So it's a good question as to whether the 4% rule is still the way to go, accepting, and I, I think you would agree, right, in your work, that the 4% rule is widely used today, talked about. It is the prevalent conventional wisdom to start with in terms of retirement income planning. Is that fair? I agree. I think it's very fair. So some of the pressures, fair. yeah, some of the pressures you mentioned interest rates. When you did that study, uh, interest rates were very low in the 1920s, I think, 30s through the depression. But for the back half of that, interest rates were higher than they are today for a good portion. And the 0% interest rate environment we are in today and will probably be in for a while, at least a low, very low interest rate environment. Um, can you talk a little bit about the pressure that that puts on the 4% rule? Yeah, so based upon the allocation, if it's 50% stocks and 50% bonds or 60% stocks and 40% bonds, 
you've got those bonds you need to, to generate at least to keep up with inflation. Uh, the government came back and said for social security purposes, inflation was 6.2% last year, but fixed income didn't, on average, um, investment grade quality fixed income, even government fixed income didn't didn't earn 6.2%. The 10-year treasury last year, a large part of it was around 1.4 to 1.5%. So you start looking at that withdrawal rate and it's hard because the fixed income side isn't keeping up where we just came off of a, a fabulous 30-year great fixed income market. Um, and going forward, it doesn't appear to be that way. So I think that's a, a pressure on the 4% rule is, is that fixed income allocation. And just to be clear, you're using bonds and fixed income, the terms interchangeably, right? Just to correct. Sure thank thank you for pointing that out. Um, um, and I think I think I saw the statistics actually, it may have come from Pacific Life even. And I, I think this is true, listeners. Um, but something like 85% of the bonds in the world today are yielding 1% or less. Correct. And so if you if you're generating four percent and in the hypothetical portfolio with a strict adherence to the original allocation put forth in the four percent rule, that means fifty percent of your portfolio is yielding on a cash flow basis one percent or less. It's hard to get to the four then, which means then of course do quick math in your head. That means the stocks need to do extremely well in order to handle even just a withdrawal of the 4%, let alone having enough slack to cover inflation and grow Correct. the portfolio so it's sustainable over time. It's a much trickier proposition than say in the late 1990s or early 2000s when you could buy a US treasury at let's say 5%. Is that yeah, a fair yeah. way to look at it, Kristen? Absolutely, because if you're getting 4% and you've got 5% on your bonds, how much does your equities need to do? Maybe, you know, average out 3% and you're there. Um, we've been relying on the equity returns the past two years and going forward with interest rates so low, you know, where, where will equities perform going forward? And do you think one of the additional pressures on the 4% rule is the longer life expectancies? And well, I'll ask the next question next. I'll, I'll let you go one I, at a time. Is... um. I think that's also part of the, the reason for the pressure. I, I have a lot of clients that are well into their 70s, 80s, and are healthy, active, uh, and an increasing number of people are going to live into their 90s, maybe even into their 100s. So this money needs to last, I think, longer for many, many people compared to the world that we were in in the 1990s when this first came about. I agree with that. We the government recently brought out new mortality tables for this year for RMD purposes, but also those mortality tables affect a lot of other areas. Um, but individuals are living longer. You've seen the statistics. It's typically a 65-year-old married couple. There's a 60% chance somebody will live to be 92 years old. So I think that's another pressure is longevity. And then, of course, inflation. Yes. And that, of course, is a hot topic today. It might even be one of the hottest topics. I I find it uh, interesting that much of what financial geeks like you and I might talk about is not really of interest to the public, generally speaking. But the inflation, the inflation is a very tangible economic event. People see it in very real, real ways in their daily lives. I've been using the example, Kristen, that, you know, 
somebody wakes up and they uh, go get gas and they say, oh my goodness, look at the gas prices, they're up a lot. And then they might meet some friends for lunch and they realize, oh, look at the prices, you know, this is pretty expensive. And then they go to the grocery store to maybe pick up some items for dinner and they see, oh my goodness, look at these food prices. It's, it's a very real, easy to picture event that's going on. And it's really captured, I think, America's attention, not just because they can see it, but it's very, very notable. I mean, we're seeing a serious surge in inflation. And so yeah. the 4% rule was already under pressure, even when we had tame inflation over the last many, many years. But talk a little bit about the pressure the 4% rule might come under if we have inflation that lasts for a while? Yeah, I mean, you'd still be taking a 4% withdrawal off of your portfolio, but now you're losing purchasing power. So you're not going to be able to buy as many goods and services as you have in the past. And we really haven't had much inflation when we take a look back over, I'm going to use social security as a guidance over the past 10 years. I mean, there were several years where social security didn't give any cost of living uh, adjustment. I think there was three times in the past 10 years, it's just going to unfortunately erode the purchasing power for an individual as we see inflation continue to grow. And, and it will continue, we anticipate it will continue to grow more than it has in the past, but not necessarily like it did last year. Yes. But if you get a few years of inflation that's above, I, I believe the Federal Reserve, I mean, their targeted inflation is around 2%. But if you get a few years where, let's say, inflation is above 4%, which I think is possible that this might run a little longer than was originally projected back at the beginning of 2021, that would would certainly put the 4% rule under pressure. I think on the flip side, though, the financial community that's talking about a reduction of the 4% rule although it might, might be based on very good academics. I think in the marketplace, it's going to get a lot of resistance. I think people who have put money in 401ks and IRAs and socked money away, building a nest egg, I'm not sure how readily accepting people are going to be of taking that little money out of their retirement account. I'm not arguing the academics. I'm just arguing the behavior that retirees are likely to adopt. What do you think of that? I agree. I think there's a lot of retirees that want to take more, a higher percentage out of their investment portfolio, or maybe um, unfortunately didn't save as much as they need to. So I think there's a fine balance and a fine line between giving a withdrawal rate that's sustainable and making sure that they're not going to run out of money, but in the same token, being able to afford that, you know, that individual's lifestyle. And Sometimes there gets to the conversation of, are you going to have to work a few more years? You're going to have to try to save more money. Are you going to work part-time during retirement or, or take a, a less withdrawal? Or, or take a greater risk that you might run out of money, Correct. Um, but you're going to balance the fear of missing out FOMO and YOLO, <laughs> only live once and, yeah. and, 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 and try and make it work. Because it could, it could work taking more out if you get good investment experience. And that brings me to my next question, because sequence of returns factors into this quite a bit. And it doesn't matter whether you're using 3% withdrawal rate, 4%, 5 6 Sequence of returns is very important. And it plays into the point I just made as to how much risk they want to adopt 
in their withdrawal rate and their retirement income planning. So can first, before we comment on it, can you just educate us on what the sequence of returns is? So the sequence of returns is based on the return of your portfolio when you start taking withdrawals out of it. So you retire in 2008, you take your first withdrawal and your account portfolio is down 10%. It's very hard to recover because the first year was negative and you're taking income out of it. Versus if you retired in 2019 and you took your first withdrawal and you had three amazing years of market performance, then your sequence of return risk is minimal compared to the individual that retired in 2008. So when individuals retire, you can't necessarily time what the market's doing, but sequence of returns is a major risk um, because of taking withdrawals on an account. And I know you talked about hypothetically 10% down in 2008. If you were investing in a mix of stocks and bonds in 2008 and you were only down 10%, you were a hero uh, (laughs) because the hardship of that year was much, much worse. Um, But I think the key thing with the sequence of returns, listeners, is that in the early years, if you uh, absorb significant losses to your principal, yes, the thing that you've been taught about the market will recover and you'll make that money back is probably true. History shows that it is, but it will have a dramatic impact on the 4% rule and the resiliency of your portfolio. Your ability not to outlive your money is definitely compromised. The first few years, avoiding downturns is very important in the 4% rule or whatever other percentage you want to put on it. And I think Kristen is exactly right. If you retired at the beginning of a really good period and you're taking the 4% and your account balance is able to drive ahead and grow, then you have a greater likelihood of having sustained account balance and generating income over your lifetime if you get off to a good start. So sequence returns is really important. And we referenced, as we begin to wrap up, Kristen, Monte Carlo, we referred to it a little bit. It's really key in retirement income planning today. I use it in my retirement planning software. Could you uh, fill everyone in on what Monte Carlo simulation is? It sounds like such a cool thing. Might not be, I'm a financial geek, but tell us what it is. So I'm gonna give the textbook definition and Monte Carlo came out of the 4% rule. So Monte Carlo simulation is a technique that allows people to account for risk when making decisions. It furnishes the decision maker with a range of possible outcomes and probabilities they will occur for any choice of action. It allows extreme possibilities, the outcomes for going broke, and for the most conservative decisions, along with all possible consequences for the middle of the road decisions. It then calculates results over and over each time using a different set of random values from probability functions, depending upon the number of uncertainties and ranges specified for them. Monte Carlo simulation can involve thousands or tens of thousands of calculations before it's complete. So Monte Carlo, of course, is not guaranteed, but it's a great guideline. And I think that's where our industry, and you were talking about technology, has really been advanced from, if you want to keep things as simple as possible, the 4% rule is a great rule of thumb, but the Monte Carlo takes it that next step. And when you're talking about what you can offer your clients, being able to run that extensive analysis and running the Monte Carlo in in simulations, you know, multiple simulations and seeing 
what can we offer? Um, and I think as we talk about money, Carla, Chris, one of the other things that we were discussing earlier is when we talk about the 4% rule, we're typically thinking about individuals maybe in their 60s. But if you have individuals that are in their 70s, is a 4% rule the same for them as it is for somebody in their 60s? And I would say that that rule would be different because they don't have the longevity that somebody in their 60s has. And yeah, that's where I think Monte Carlo comes in great in situations like that. Yeah, and, and you bring up a good point because when the um, study was done in 1994, Monte Carlo simulations didn't exist. You, didn't, you just didn't have the analytic data power for that. It's something that has come into being later on, but it's a great tool. And as you said, it's not foolproof, but it is an advancement of the analysis that we can do. And I, I, I picture it where... Uh, the Monte Carlo allows you to helpfully stack the odds in your favor that you'll be successful. It's not foolproof, but you can stack the odds in your favor because it's running all of these thousands of simulations to give you a percentage chance of success. And the higher you can stack the odds in your favor, the safer your plan will be in terms of being successful. And uh, so that's good with Monte Carlo simulation. If you're uh, listening and you're a client, we've done a retirement analysis for you. Included in that retirement analysis is a Monte Carlo simulation. It is uh, crucial to the work we do in retirement planning, forecasting, as well as income planning. But it's not the end all to be all. And uh, in the time we have left, I agree with you about the 4% rule. And I'll take issue, there's a community out there, it's loosely called the FIRE community, Financial Independence, Retire Early. And I love a lot of what they do. They talk about building wealth, empowerment, emphasizing work-life balance that you don't necessarily need to work until you're 80. You don't necessarily need a, a gazillion dollars to retire. They do a lot of good things, but they rely heavily, most of the community, I'm stereotyping, heavily on the 4% rule. And I'm not sure if I retired early at 50 or 45, like this community often talks about, that I would use the 4% rule. I think that would be a little limiting given the income and the time frame. Um, I'm not saying that as an end all to be all, but it just seems that community, I don't know if you're plugged into that community at all, um, I follow it pretty closely, but if, if do you think the 4% rule at somebody that retires much younger is a good way to go? Or would you be a little concerned about that? Or would it, I, that at least give you pause? I, I would give, I would be concerned because of longevity, that individual, especially if they're in a relationship could live 40 to 50 years. And I think the 4% rule would more be for somebody typically retiring in their sixties versus their fifties. So I would be yeah. concerned. And especially that sequence of risk would have a really, really impact Absolutely. on that individual. And uh, the other thing is if, if someone comes to me and we have this happen routinely, and let's say they have worked and had a fulfilling career and they're retiring and let's say I'm making up a number 78 years old, I think the 4% rule may very well be too limiting given life expectancy and the fact that they retire later, that that withdrawal rate may be too little given the age of when they're turning on the income, does that seem like a fair initial? Um, absolutely, absolutely. 
for that aspect because of their longevity and then take it a step further. Maybe it's an individual that's single or widowed and now it's even more compromised longevity. So I definitely think it would be very limited in that aspect too. Yeah, and, and listeners, there's a lot of factors with this. We're talking in generalities. Um, you should not take any of this as like gospel and start acting on this. Situations are different. You know, another one is, you know, if, if uh, leaving a legacy, leaving an inheritance, if you don't have children, you know, that's also an impact because this presupposes that you never touch a principal. And, you know, you could have a nice retirement and spend some of your principal. You don't have to pass away with your original principal plus growth to keep up with inflation. That's not the only way to be successful in retirement. So that's another example of uh, things that should be explored in the retirement planning process. So you come up with a plan that will be good for you, your goals, your situation, meet your priorities. So I think that's a good place to leave it, Kristen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I will be back on the next episode of the Simply Financial Podcast very soon. In the meantime, uh, subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already, I would really appreciate that. And uh, recommend it to a friend, family member, coworker. That would be pretty good for me too. So thank you much. Thanks again, Kristen. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of SagePoint Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Please note, the information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information provided at these websites, nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to your use of third-party technologies websites, information, and programs made available through this website. When you access one of these websites, you are leaving our website and assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the websites you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through SagePoint Financial Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC, insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management, LLC, not affiliated with SagePoint Financial.